3: This is Bear Sheldon Neely and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. Welcome back, everybody, as we continue our uh, Mardi Gras edition of the Tom Sumner program. We're still having our chats, as we will in just a uh, moment. We opened up this hour with David and Rosalind. Rosalind is uh, from here in Flint originally, but she and her husband Dave have been uh, living and working as musicians in New Orleans and are a regular part of uh, Mardi Gras not just here on the Tom Sumner program, but in New Orleans as they ride with the wrecks, as they say. But no parades today, so we'll just have to uh, keep the spirit alive the best we can. And the music you're hearing in the background is uh, actually uh, a pretty good way of doing that. That's the uh, Bayou River Band that I used to be in uh, many years ago. We played on the riverboat in Lansing and on the one in Detroit. And uh, features uh, just some of the local talent saying, hey, we can do Dixieland too. But anyway, we're going to switch back to conversation here in just a moment. And hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, I guess this hour, is uh, a veteran British investigative journalist best known for his inquiries into the drug industry, medicine, and social issues for the Sunday Times of London. Among his uh, many awards, he was twice named the UK's Specialist Reporter of the Year. And in 2016, he was made Doctor of Letters by York St. John University. He has a uh, new book out called The Doctor Who Fooled the World, Science, Deception, and the War on Vaccines by Brian Deer. And Brian joins me by phone. Brian, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Tom. Tell me about the war on vaccines. Um, you, you sort of attach it to a, a, an individual, a specific doctor.
2: Yes, uh the I mean there've been controversies about vaccines going back to ancient China and India, but uh the and there were big controversies in the 19th century and more in the 1970s and 1980s, but the modern phenomenon of anti-vaccine campaigning really dates back to a doctor called Andrew Wakefield who was uh working at a, a London medical school who, in February 1998, published a a study, a paper, as they call them, in the Lancet Medical Journal, which is, I guess, the world's number two general medical journal, uh, proposing uh, that he found evidence of a link between the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the MMR vaccine, and uh, autism. And um, he published a paper... Uh, and it, it set off a huge controversy in the United Kingdom because at face value what this paper seemed to suggest was that there were there was a hospital yes the hospital did exist where the where a series of families turned up parents of 12 children turned up and they they said that their child was developing perfectly normally and in uh, two out of three of these uh, cases, the parents said that, the, that they'd received their MMR vaccine, and within 14 days, very specifically within 14 days, these children had shown the first signs of autism. And Wakefield claimed in this paper also that he'd discovered a new syndrome, as he called it, of uh, a disease, which was... Included autism and uh, and other features, particularly uh, bowel features, because he was working in a he was a gastroenterologist, and um, and this uh, this uh, paper was the focus for uh, a press conference that was called at the hospital and the medical school, where he called for the suspension of the MMR vaccine and set off this huge controversy in the UK with falling immunization rates because parents were frightened, outbreaks of disease, particularly measles, and he then exported that from the UK to the United States and the rest of the world. And, um, you know, at face value, uh, the the paper was saying that that there was, was potentially here the first snapshot of a potentially hidden epidemic of catastrophic injuries that could be affecting children all over the world, but less vigilant doctors hadn't noticed, hadn't spotted it. So it was a justifiable thing for the media to be concerned about. And then I came along and um, found that this paper uh, was not what it appeared to be. And um, it's, uh, it's what many... Uh, medical scientists now regard to be the most damaging scientific fraud in a hundred years
3: well and vaccination itself is uh, a little peculiar on its face um, because in its in its sort of most simplistic form you take a little bit of the disease inject somebody with it and it uh helps them build up antibodies against the disease (laughs) and that 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 sounds peculiar to people so anything that sounds suspicious about vaccinations and of course as you well know there are all kinds of wild things about the government putting chips into the vaccination and injecting us with these things to track us and all of that kind of stuff but at the time of this it, it strikes me that, number one, it's unusual for doctors to hold a press conference with regard to yes. some discovery yes. or paper that they're uh, publishing. And the other is that his claim came at a time when lots of things were starting to be diagnosed that never had been before. Yes, that's so right. So yeah. autism was statistically going up as doctors got better at diagnosing it and as they included more things in this sort of world of spectrum disorders. And so now all of a sudden you've got lots more cases of uh, autism and this guy saying he knows what's causing it.
2: Yes, yes, that's exactly right. So that was the the moment, and there were all this constellation of uh, circumstances had come together, and he made full use of them. And then he was
3: stopped. Why didn't people's apprehension about the vaccines stop?
2: Well, uh, in the UK, uh, there was initially tremendous progress. When I published my first stories from that point on, which this was in – my first story appeared in uh, February 2004, uh, so that was six years after the the paper was – original Wakefield paper was published – the vaccination rates with MMR recovered fully. They fully recovered in the years that followed that paper. and uh, My my first publications and, and subsequent stories that I wrote completely recovered. But what he was able to do was to firstly move to the United States and in the United States to spend his whole time. He was a full-time campaigner. And the story that he told was not the truth of the matter, um, but a whole fictitious uh story about how he'd been persecuted by the drug industry which to my knowledge actually decided they weren't going to go after him because the the the, the 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 controversy that uh that surfaced in the UK was uh, what was initially focused on a lawsuit and that uh he was uh, he was involved in that and in, in that lawsuit the drug industry chose not to go after him and um, so he, he, But he alleges it's a conspiracy by the drug industry, by government, who he claimed were trying to cover up injuries to children that they'd known about, Rupert Murdoch, the media mogul, and, um, you know, whoever else. And, the, and he presented himself as the victim.
3: More with investigative journalist and author Brian Deere, straight ahead. Hello,
2: darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner.
5: I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is
0: working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there. And please, stay home and stay safe.
1: The Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com.
4: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
3: More with investigative journalist and author Brian Deere, straight ahead.
2: The thing about conspiracy theories is that, that they. That false information, in fact it's been research on this, false information, incredible outlandish claims, have an ability to travel and to be believed in a way that truth um, often isn't. And this is particularly true of the world we live in now with all this social media of Facebook and YouTube and websites and what have you, that... um, you know, anybody and their dog can start putting out information, and it can be wildly false, but there are going to be susceptibles within this market of misinformation who take it up and amplify it. But um, to, uh, to tell, I mean, I probably ought to, to say what it was that was wrong with his paper, to give you, give you some sense of um, what he did. Yeah, please. Two years before that paper was published... He'd been hired by a lawyer to launch an attack on the MMR vaccine. And they'd gone and got, uh, made a grant application to get money to do research that was, was well, actually was only ever going to have one outcome. So he was a hired gun. He wasn't an independent researcher as he appeared to be. He had this monstrous conflict of interest because he was being paid at hourly rates Large amounts of money ultimately he walked away with it in modern in present currency translated to u s dollars is probably about three quarters of a million dollars he was paid at hourly rates so uh, but if the lawsuit didn 't take place or if it was truncated or failed, that income stream would halt so so that was a monstrous conflict of interest he had, but then the children. There were 12 children in the study. They weren't just patients who were coming to a bowel clinic or anything like that. They were actually the children of people who had claims in that lawsuit, who wanted to take part in that lawsuit, who'd been referred to him by an anti-vaccine group. So they were bound to blame the vaccine when they came to the hospital. This This wasn't a finding. It was part of his methodology. And then finally, when... No link was found in his research between MMR and autism as he was contracted to find. He altered diagnoses, he altered children's histories and misrepresented children's histories. He misreported pathology findings and covered up the children's real issues, the real medical issues they had, in order to create the appearance of having discovered a new medical syndrome, um, if you like, a fingerprint of vaccine damage in order to get this lawsuit going. So the whole thing was um, completely outrageous from the start. And and what caused him
3: to uh, ultimately move to the United States? Was it Americans' uh, love of uh, <laughs> conspiracy theories?
2: <laughs> well, initially, it was because before I'd started work on this subject, his university, he'd The the medical school where he worked was absorbed. It was merged into a a very prestigious university, University College London, hugely wealthy, one of the top universities in the world. And um, they asked him, they summoned him to the provost and president's office. And the provost and president of the university asked him... Uh, to carry out a a replication study not with 12 children but with 150 children which he said he'd got and uh, to do the work properly an absolute gold standard study that would be mirrored at two external sites so as to ensure accuracy and publishing speed and what have you it was a scientist a true scientist gift of a lifetime because the university said it would help him they would find money for him to do it and so on and so forth He refused to do it. He refused to replicate and to prove his own claims, even though the public and parents were being frightened witless whenever it was time for a child to be vaccinated. There was this public uproar. He refused to do it, claiming that this infringed his academic freedom. And once he'd done that, they were determined to get him out. He had no future there. Uh, one one senior manager said I could have made him work in a cupboard. You know, they were out to get rid of him. And so he resigned. He was paid a large amount of money to leave. And he moved to the United States to continue his campaign and really to migrate the concern over the vaccine safety to, to America. And that's what he did. And the, th- the thing about this,
3: um, are there... Are there other examples that you're aware of of um, people putting across uh, dubious scientific claims? And, and to what degree has that contributed to where we find ourselves today with, uh, with climate deniers and, and people doubting the word of uh, doctors and scientists in general?
2: Well, I, I, one of the things I say in, in the Doctor Who Fooled the world is if if he could if he could do what he did and I and I show you what he did over not just at that hospital but after he got to America and what he did there. Who else is doing what in the hospitals and laboratories that we we may look to for our lives? And uh, it's my firm belief, having having carried out medical and pharmaceutical related investigations for. Well, more than thirty years. Uh, it's my conviction that, the, that 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 misconduct of this kind and fraud of this kind con- kind is extremely common, but that the biomedical journals who publish this stuff don't want to investigate it. It's very expensive and time-consuming to investigate. They don't want to do that. What they want to do is to rely on this thing that a lot of people have heard of, peer review. Oh, we've got peer review. And What right. peer review is that they, set, they send a they send a, a paper they're thinking of publishing off to somebody to give it a quick read, and it's it's a test of superficial plausibility. It's not a test of truth. Um, so they prefer that, and they prefer reproducibility. So if they publish a study that is complete garbage because it's been made up, then that'll that'll be okay because sooner or later somebody else will come along with another study that puts the record straight and the journals don't have to pay for either of them and the classic example is actually in this this um this coronavirus issue because back in June the New England Journal of Medicine which is immensely prestigious immensely difficult to get a paper published by world's number 1 general medical journal and the lancet the number two general medical journal, most people would, would, uh, would think, um, both retracted papers on treatments and health ca- outcomes uh, in, the, in hospitals uh, among coronavirus patients, and uh, they, the, the, this paper claimed to be reporting on data from hundreds of hospitals, thousands of patients, and then along came three journalists from The Guardian newspaper, one in Australia, one in the UK, and one in the United States. And they set about Googling and looking online and looking into the background of the company that lay behind all this data, the the authors of the paper. And they discovered the thing was, to to put it bluntly, a crock of shit. And um, the, both journals retracted the papers. Uh, by, again, as with uh, the, the example of my own investigation, Based on the work of journalists, not based on the work of the medical establishment or the scientific community. They don't want to hear about this. They don't want to hear about um, extra scrutiny, extra regulation of ex- uh, extra trust, uh, extra confidence in the scientific progress. They don't want to process. They don't want to hear about that. And in fact, just a just a week back, uh, I uh, I submitted. a a paper where I put forward my proposals for reform that would give the public more confidence in these very difficult times in the integrity of uh, medical research and the journal who'd invited me to write the piece refused to print it and the the, I'd made almost the same case about four or five years ago when the top uh, general science journal Nature had also invited me to write a piece, and they wouldn't print it, they just do not want the kind of things that I would say that are needed to be ventilated and discussed. They just don't want to hear it because it would cost them money and put them to all kinds of inconvenience and they're they're happy with the way things are and, and that was that was going to be my question Brian
3: why wouldn't it be worth the money to defend their their
2: standards
3: and their credibility.
2: Oh, because uh, research misconduct. Oh, it just takes forever. You know, it's 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 so time consuming, and then the people you're investigating might sue you. I've been sued twice, unsuccessfully. Uh, it's just a lot of bother that they don't want it brings it brings disrepute on the journal for having published it in the first place the lancet uh, tried to destroy my investigation tried to sabotage it rather than uh, investigate what i was uh, telling them they they attempted to discredit me um so they don't want to hear these things and they don't want to he- they do not want to get particularly involved in anything expensive See, biomedical journals, things like um, many of them, most, of, most medical journals and, and medical science journals are published by a very small group of very big corporations who make enormous profits on the turnover they, uh, they pass uh, through their books. And... Um, they don't, they don't want to get involved in uh, allegations of research fraud or people cutting corners and all that kind of stuff. Because my propose. I mean, what they tend to do is usually when their editors of those journals retire, they then say, oh, well, I actually think that research fraud ought to be a criminal offence, uh, which is one of my proposals it should be. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's akin to theft um, to knowingly submit false information for publication in medical journals, that's one of the things that I would like to see. Another thing that I would like to see is spot checks of laboratory laboratories. Um, I would like to see people who are carrying out life or death research subject to the same scrutiny that restaurants generally are, well, they are in the UK, I'm not entirely sure of the regulatory regime in the United States. But uh, in the UK, if you run a restaurant, you could be subject to a, an unannounced spot check by uh, people checking whether your your kitchens are hygienic at any time. And I said this in, in, uh, in my c- contribution to nature, and they said, you can't say that. This is the house magazine of science. You can't uh, compare scientists with restaurant managers. And I thought, well, who would assume that scientists are necessarily more honest than restaurant managers where does that come from so that's another one of my proposals and the third one of my proposals it would be that um, anyone who submits uh, research to a medical journal should be in a position where they accept that if asked and they probably wouldn't be very often if if asked they were prepared to take part in a recorded interview with an editor from the journal and an and an expert in their field, the, fe- the field that the paper is all about, about their methods, the data, and all that kind of stuff. So there's a forensically certain record. Some kind of thing the police would do or the FBI would do. You get a forensically certain record of what this person is saying about this paper. And I think that should be done as another... Um, way of bringing transparency and reassurance to the public that uh that what's appearing in medical science journals is actually uh truthful not just credit not just credible and plausible but truthful and that's a that's a different test
3: yeah that is a different test um this andrew wakefield has been described as uh Let's see where's where's the phrase I saw just a moment ago the so-called father of the anti-vaccine movement and through your work that drove him to the United States did did anybody challenge him here they they must have challenged him because I know I've talked to doctors recently and brought up that that um alleged connection between uh, vaccines and autism, and, and uh, they're very quick to say, oh, that's been disproven.
2: Yeah, but they're, they're just basing it on my work. They, they contributed nothing to it. And, in fact, there's one, there's one um, vaccine developer who seems to, to pop up everywhere uh, who's just written a, a review of my book in science where he basically uh, uh, he doesn't quite trash it, But he he talks it all down and sort of says, well, this is all an old story, this has all been told. What he doesn't say is that he took all my work, as it was published piece by piece in in, uh, the Sunday Times and uh, and elsewhere, and put it into his own books and held it out as being his own. So there's this person who's relying on my work because the medical establishment and the scientific community wouldn't do anything about it, and at the same time... He kind of tries to push me to the uh, to the edges of it all, but yeah, they're, they're all saying these things now. But it, they weren't saying that when the paper appeared. The criticisms of the paper at the time were, oh well, there were only twelve children, and twelve children—that's not enough to take any notice of that. This has all been dreamt up by the media. This has all been this has all been blown up. Um, but the paper was uh, the paper was uh, a small study. And uh, you can't make any generalizations about it. Well, that just doesn't play. And, and I think on reflection, they know the medical establishment scientific community know it doesn't play because autism itself was first classically described, in fact, from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, on 11 children. AIDS, what came to be known as AIDS, was first described on the cases of five gay men in Los Angeles would anybody say those those things should never have been reported and shouldn't have been taken seriously we shouldn't have been worried about the first uh, signals that we were getting about AIDS in the 1980s because it was only a, a small, relatively small number of people um, so they know that that, uh, that, that the, 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 crit- the criticisms they had of the Wakefield paper at the time weren't valid, they were trivial uh, but they, they couldn't this is the thing about it. They couldn't believe that the, that the paper would be fraudulent. They couldn't believe that, that they, they just couldn't accept that a chap, you know, I think that's the way they kind of look at it, particularly in the UK, a chap would do such a thing because that would have been the only other explanation. But when I looked at that paper and I looked down it and I saw this table and it said autism, 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 MMR, 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 MMR. And then this time link of 14 days, I thought that was done for a lawsuit. But I don't want to get involved in it because I don't want to do something about another vaccine. I wanted to do something else. But then my editor said to me, look, you know, go and look at the um, go and look at MMR. And the first thing I did was to go and interview a mother whose child was enrolled in Wakefield Research. And the story she told me was Nothing like the way it was reported in in his paper, and from that, I knew that this was something that ought to be investigated.
3: now you debunked his uh, his paper and you 've written extensively about it, but how did your your coverage of that and your investigation into that turn into a book
2: Well, what really was the turning point, I think was that um I'd been the subject of massive abuse from anti-vaccine campaigners and I'd uh, attended the General Medical Council hearing into Wakefield's misconduct which went on for 217 days and uh, I said things outside the hearing because Wakefield said these children had a new inflammatory bowel disease and we'd already in the hearing heard the evidence on that and these children didn't have bowel disease so I said well these children didn't have bowel disease. I said this to these protesters outside, and I said, well, you should come into the hearing and listen to it. And uh, somebody made a, a YouTube video that was seen by 150,000 people by the last time I saw it that tried to make me look like a fool or a liar. Um, and, um, and what happened was one of the other mothers whose child was enrolled in the research uh, came forward and said, like, I wanted to... Talked to you about this over the years, and she turned over to me more than a hundred documents, diaries of what her child went through in the hospital, uh, minutes of phone conversations with Wakefield, letters to his lawyers where she was telling them that the paper was untrue, emails to me saying this paper is uh, I can she said I can see this paper is fraudulent from what was written about my child. So it was there was it was that because not only did it provide me with solid ammunition fact that uh, Wakefield wasn't able to dispute, but also added the opportunity to tell the story, the heartbreaking story of parents who who see their child, they bring into the world the most precious thing in life, and they see their child experience a, a regression, a change where they may lose skills, they may stop speaking, they may start looking at their fingers obsessively and parents go on a, what I call a desperate quest for answers and solutions and I think when she came to me and turned over to me all this stuff and met me and we talked about her experience uh, I knew that I had to put this into the public domain as, as a book because you need to see the whole story because it's not a book where I hold forth this is not what Tom Wolfe called the uh, um, educated gentleman with a seat in the grandstand but it was, um, it was a, a narrative it was, uh, it was the story of the real people and the specific facts of how this thing unfolded and people say to me this book reads like a thriller and I suppose it does, I suppose it does because with each, as each chapter passes the thing becomes more and more extraordinary, more and more shocking as to what can go on in medical research
3: well, Brian, unfortunately, we've we've come to the end of our time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and uh, your work, past, present, and future, including uh, this book. Um, do you have a website?
2: Yes, uh, uh You'll find me on Google. Just put my name, Brian Deer, into Google. Or you can go straight to Amazon and uh, put my name in, and you can uh, find where my book is. And, um... It's available now, and, um, and I think it's a story that people will find interesting. It's, it's uh, popular science, it's true crime, and, um, you know, it's the story of how we got from there to here. And if people want to take decisions about uh, their vaccination status in the face of, of the COVID outbreak or their families, then this is a, a good place to understand the anti-vaccine movement.
3: Well, Brian, your work is, uh, is amazing, and I appreciate the time that you've spent with me. Thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you a lot, Tom.
3: Take care. That was uh, veteran British investigative journalist uh, Brian Deer. His new book is called The Doctor Who Fooled the World, Science, Deception, and the War on Vaccines. And uh, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program
1: straight up. To the right hey, and stay inside with me you, you might just save a life or two or three or four or maybe five
4: let's save lives we breathe
1: baby this ice Summer program.com. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now, too, and even now.
4: Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you're worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov.
6: and here's one of the songs that you might hear if you were slowly following a jazz band down the street in Orleans heading for a funeral. their umbrellas wearing shorts following the vans down the street you get in line and follow them too because when they leave the church they're still marching slow and quietly and they all get to the graveyard and then you discover one of the other unusual things about New Orleans and that's that in the city of New Orleans they don't bury people didn't know that, huh? or did you? you didn't know that well they don't because you see, New Orleans is between three and 11 feet below sea level. And if you tried to dig a six-foot hole to bury somebody, you got a minimum of three feet of seawater. Folks feel kind of funny about doing something like that. You know? So in New Orleans, everybody is buried in vaults. But the minister still says ashes to ashes and dust to dust, just as though he were going to be putting them in the ground. And about that time, the family starts to boohooing because they're feeling kind of sad because they've lost their dearly departed. And then the minister reminds you that you're not supposed to cry at a funeral. Did you know that? You're supposed to rejoice. You're supposed to rejoice that another poor soul has escaped this veil of tears. And if you can't rejoice because another poor soul has escaped this veil of tears, at the very least, you can be glad it wasn't you. <laughs> About that time, the minister signals to the undertaker, and he hands flowers out to the family, and he signals to the trumpet player. And then you find out why everybody follows a jazz funeral as far as it takes Sounds sort of like this.
1: back
3: Well, that may wrap it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program, but Mardi Gras is still alive and well, as you can hear from the music in the background from the Bayou River Band that I used to play uh, drums with uh, many years ago. And before that, we heard David Rosalind from New Orleans. This uh, past hour, we had a chance to uh, talk with um, uh, author, give me a minute, Brian Deer about the um, doctor that knew too much and um, before that we talked with uh... the author of a uh, a new book uh, john cammage is his name also from the u.k uh... author of a book called she wore a yellow dress and we started off talking about mardi gras with uh, new orleans uh investigative journalist historian writer filmmaker extraordinaire jason berry the author of city of a million dreams a history of new orleans at year 300 and uh, and i've had my punch key and uh i probably will have another one and uh, continue to celebrate although we're snowed in here in michigan um, They're not doing the parade in New Orleans either. Things are a little different this year between the pandemic and they're having some cold weather as well. But uh, that does wrap it up. Tomorrow is Wednesday, which means armchair politics. Politico Emeritus Woodrow Stanley joins our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, for our uh, weekly roundtable called Armchair Politics. Anyway, happy Mardi Gras, everybody. Let the good times roll. Good night, everyone